Today, we are wrapping up 1 Corinthians, and we are in Paul's final words where he really summarizes not just his letter, but you can pick up so many of Paul's leadership principles that he's sharing for us. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 24 in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And before I start that, let me take us back to a time when some of you may have been old enough to remember you actually wrote letters. You get a pen and ink and letters, and you would write with your own hand to somebody. I used to do that in college when I went away to school, and I would write some very personal notes to people that I cared about, and I would put a stamp on it, take it to the post office. They would send it. Took a long time to get there, even longer back in Paul's day. But that was special. When somebody received a letter like that, you really wanted to treasure it. And in fact, I kept some special letters, including a couple that I got from my parents and one that I got from my grandmother while I was away at college, because it meant something to me that she took the time to do that in her own hand. And then back in the hospital where I was waiting for my mother to transition from this earth to her eternal home in heaven, she had some last words for my sister and me. We sat at her bedside and she knew that she was not long for this earth. And she said, I want to share some very important things with you right now. And they were her last words, literally to us. She was instructing us in some things that she thought were practical, but also some things that really lasted in terms of her basic life's lessons and teaching that we would carry with us for the rest of our lives. You want to cling to those last words because they're important. That's why I think it's important for us to dive into these last words from Paul, because he's really summarizing a lot of his teaching and those principles that are scattered all through all of his writings to the different believers in various locations in the Middle East back then. That was what was happening here as he's writing back in Ephesus, which is where he's writing this from, to the people in Corinth, approximately 53 AD, only a couple of decades after all the events of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, Many of these things, as I've mentioned before, were probably journaled by different people who had writing abilities, and there were people among the apostles who had those abilities. Paul was trying to summarize some things that he thought would be very important. Now, he hoped to see these people again, but he always knew that God's plans can change at a moment, which we'll see. And so he wanted to make sure that in these final words, he was saying something that if he never got to see them face to face, they would have something in print that would help guide them as they took all these teachings into their future. So let me read verses 1 through 24 from Paul's words for us right now. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I do arrive, <clears throat> I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit, I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. 
but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go with you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, now we would say a, a holy elbow bump. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this word, and I pray that he will illuminate it through his Holy Spirit. We might not think of ourselves as being spiritual leaders. Some of you, in fact, may be quite young in the Lord, but you're still a leader. Even when we're not aware that people are watching, people are looking at our lives, and I became aware of that even at a very young age because I recognized that even though you may be a certain age, there's always somebody a little bit younger than you are, and they're looking at you, and they're paying attention to what you're leading through your example and your words. Paul was aware of that. He was training up leaders in these different churches that he was planting all through this section of the world that we've been talking about. And yet, he also knew that everybody is a potential leader as well within the church, and that everybody is leading somebody. We might, all, might not all be Paul's, and we might not all be Timothy's, but we're leading somebody. So that means that these principles in these last verses of chapter 16, the final words in 1 Corinthians, are important to every single one of us. Here is a little bit of a rundown about these principles. I'm going to be hitting real highlights today, and it's really not going to take all that long. Uh, so don't get scared by looking at how many of these things are on your screen right now. Fostering accountability, modeling financial integrity, seeking and accepting advice, remaining flexible in your plans, looking for opportunities where God's work may be accomplished, but expecting adversity, even though you see some opportunities opening up, affirming good work in others, encouraging unity among fellow believers, speaking the tough truths, which he does toward the very end of this letter, but always expressing Christ-like love. Those are what we're going to look at briefly today. 
fostering accountability. We can see that in the very first couple of verses here. He's saying, I want you in Corinth to do the same things that I've been instructing the Galatians to do. Part of that accountability is to say, you're in this together. You're not just uh, all by yourselves. No man is an island and no church is completely autonomous. We're a collective group of capital C church members. And so the universal church, those churches made up all across the world of every believer in Jesus Christ need to cooperate in the work of the Lord, and you need to hold each other accountable to that work. Another principle that Paul gives here is very clear direction. He was giving very specific instructions about how they should go about doing some of the collections for the people who are destitute because of famine and persecution back in Jerusalem. He says very practically, save up this money and give it in proportion to the way you've been blessed. If you haven't been given that much, you haven't made much money, that's okay. A percentage is still helpful. 10% is still 10% regardless of what your annual income might be. And he says, and save it up and give it on the first day of the week. A couple of good reasons for that. There's a Sabbath principle involved here. And that might be that you need to, to do something to show God that you're really setting him apart. Give your first and give your best. We talked recently about Christ being our first fruits because of his death on the cross and then his resurrection, which promises our resurrection as well. I think there's sort of a first fruits principle uh, at work here with Paul as well. So give your giving, your gift on the first day of the week. Don't wait until you have leftovers and say, ooh, I've only got two pennies left. Oh, well, make sure that you set it aside ahead of time to show God that you're really putting him first. And then there would be no need for a collection when I arrive. He didn't want to be going around acting like a fundraiser when he was among them. He wanted to concentrate on leadership development and on preaching the word and getting in people's homes and making sure that the work of the Lord was continuing well. He didn't want to have to spend all of his time being a fundraiser. Verses three and four, he's fostering accountability and financial integrity. He said, now, when I get to you, you may choose to send some letters of introduction for ambassadors that you approve to represent you as you send your gifts to the people in Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable, I'll go with them. Paul remained accountable to the local church. He set them up to help him, but he was the one who initiated his own accountability. He took the initiative for accountability. There's a mistaken notion at times that accountability means that you have to pester me with the right questions to hold me accountable. That's the reverse of what Paul is showing us here. If I want to be accountable and be held accountable, then I have to open myself up to the people I choose to hold me accountable, and then I have to continually report to them and ask for their input. That's what Paul was doing here among them. I'm the one who initiates accountability, and then I'm the one responsible if I fall short or if I start to hide something from that group of people that I have opened myself up to. Seek and accept advice. This is an important principle for Paul. And you would think that if anybody had a lot of good issues clearly in his mind and good leadership principles so that he could pontificate, it would be Paul. But instead, he says, no, I'm going to set the example by being a humble servant style of leader, and I'm going to seek advice because that's one of the ways I can discern God's goodwill in my life. He asked them if they thought he should accompany the men that they choose to deliver that offering to Jerusalem. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice, says Proverb 12, 15. And there's, I think, 
a corollary here, and you might not always connect 12.15 with Proverbs 16.9, but I think they go together because Proverbs 16.9 says, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Well, how does the Lord establish our steps? One of the ways he does that is because we open ourselves up to good advice from godly people. <laughs> That's how God speaks to us. He speaks through the written word. He speaks through general revelation, but he also speaks through those wise people that God has surrounded us with so that we can all discern together what God is doing and when's the right time, what's the right way to say it, who are we contacting, how should we do that, what's the best way to have the greatest result. All of that goes into this collective thinking that we are a part of as part of the body of Christ. And Paul models that for his people. James D. Glass said this, I would rather be disagreed with by someone who understands me than to be agreed with by someone who does not understand me. There's some wisdom in that. And then the wise and winsome Clive Wellington says, seeking wise counsel means accepting the advice you get, even when it isn't necessarily what you had hoped to hear. I like that, Clive. We're also supposed to remain flexible in plans. Key phrases in what we just read from Paul. If it seems advisable, perhaps I will stay with you for a while. I hope to spend some time with you. Can you hear the flexibility in the way that Paul has worded all these things? And then, of course, he is willing to stay for a while when he sees the door open, as he says in verse 9, the first part of that verse. He says, a great door for effective work has opened to me. That's why he wanted to stay put for a while and really put down some roots because he saw that God had opened the door. There were receptive hearts and he wanted to plant as many of those seeds of truth as he could in that fertile field. But along with that, he's also speaking some of these tough truths, which says, and there are many who oppose me. <laughs> Orville Merillat, the founder of Merillat Cabinetry, lived out in Adrian, said, when you take a position, expect opposition. Man, that's true for everything, isn't it? I, I think that there are some very interesting conversations that have been had among people who start to become opinionated about anything, because if you express a strong opinion, you can be sure that somewhere somebody's going to have an opposite opinion and they're going to push back on that. Paul knew that. That didn't mean that he ran away from the opposition. It meant that when he saw that people were still open to the gospel, and receptive to what he was teaching, despite the opposition, he was going to stay put and stay there for a long enough time to make sure that he was planting those seeds deep, watering them, and knowing that he may have to pass the harvest to somebody else because he was moving on to raise up new leaders in different locations because he was an apostle called to carry that good news to other cultures and other towns. But he wasn't going to just run away from the opposition. He said, in fact, if you're doing something right, probably you will be expecting opposition. It's going to happen to all of us. Affirm good work in others. We see this a lot, especially in Paul's relationship with the younger man, Timothy. He mentions Timothy in this part of his letter here. And Timothy, of course, has two wonderful letters with his name on them. And because Paul had written to Timothy, he was instructing Timothy, a younger man, with some really solid leadership and spiritual growth principles as well. Paul affirms Timothy in the work. He says to these people in Corinth, make sure that Timothy has nothing to fear when he shows up. He is carrying out the work of the Lord. No one should treat him with contempt 
Why would he say that? Maybe it's because Timothy was so young. He was young in the faith and he was physically young. It's a very good chance that Timothy, when he first hooked up with Paul and started traveling with him, was really only in his late teens or early 20s. A very young man. In our growth encounter just a little while ago, uh, Steve was talking about the fact that young David, when he was anointed, was very young. And there may have been some fear about carrying out some of the things God was calling him to do. Same thing with Timothy. I can't imagine being that young and being called upon to do some of the things Paul was asking Timothy to do. But he was set apart for the work because people, including the elders, saw clearly that Timothy had that kind of spiritual maturity beyond his age. And so Paul said, no one should treat this kid with contempt. That's my paraphrase. Send him on his way in peace. Give him the shalom of the Holy Spirit so that he can carry that peace out into other places where he has work to do as well. There may have been some other reasons why Paul didn't want them to show contempt toward Timothy. We know from some of the other letters that Timothy had a Greek father, and so a Gentile father and a Jewish mother. He had good teaching from his mother and his grandmother, and so Timothy was following in his mother's and his grandmother's footsteps. But people might have thought, yeah, we're not sure about his parentage because of that Greek father. Paul had called him a true son in the faith in 1 Timothy 1-2. And we know that he later served even as a pastor in Ephesus, which is where Paul is now as he's writing to Corinth. So Paul clearly saw that Timothy had a great deal of leadership possibilities, and he was nurturing all that potential in Timothy. And he wants to make sure that the people in Corinth continue to nurture that same potential because Timothy hadn't yet continued to arrive or completely arrived. Paul affirms other believers as well, and he names some of them. He says the household of Stephanus, the Fortunatus and Achaeus. These are people who had worked with Paul, and he says, I want to call them out in a good way and say, hey, you need to respect people who are like this, and you need to follow their example and their leadership because they're deserving of your, leadership, of your followership. Apollos, this is an interesting little uh, portion of this letter related to Apollos. He was one of the leaders that some were choosing to favor over other leaders, including Paul, if you'll re remember, back early in the letter in 1 Corinthians. And when he was saying, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers, he was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. He doesn't elaborate on that. We have to speculate, perhaps, read between the lines. I can't help but wonder, based on the first part of Paul's letter, if maybe Apollos was waiting for Paul to set the stage and to mediate some of those conflicts that he was writing about in 1 Corinthians, making sure that Apollos wasn't going to go and usurp some of Paul's authority by showing up when they were showing a lot of favor to Apollos. Maybe he was trying to be a mediator himself by holding back long enough to make sure that they knew all leaders are of the Lord and they should be treated equally and to be respected equally if they are serving with, with good examples as Paul and Apollos both were. It may have been too that Apollos had found fertile ground just like Paul had found fertile ground. And Apollos may have thought, I can't leave yet. There's too much unfinished work here. There are people who still need to grasp what I'm teaching them and they're coming along, the light bulbs are going on over their heads. They get what I'm teaching. I can't leave just yet. Let me finish until I can feel that peace of the Holy Spirit that says, okay, you've finished enough here. Now you can pass the work into somebody else's hands. It's time for you to go. And then you can go on as Paul wants you to. Whatever the case, 
you can tell that Apollos is using some spiritual discernment in how he's making his decisions about when he should go to whom. Submit to such people, meaning like those in Stephanus in context with the previous verse, and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Paul is urging these people to be submissive to leadership because that was one of the problems they had, as we saw early on. We might not always want to submit to those God has placed in our lives as authority figures, but Paul urges humble submission to those who lead by example. Even sometimes if they lead in a different way or have a different personality than a previous leader that we've known, or perhaps if there's some things that they say that are challenging to us and we don't particularly like challenges, we're still supposed to submit to their leadership because they're set in place by the Lord. Man, we've had a lot of difficulty with that, even in our nation of late. And I've seen a lot of good posts from people that are saying, remember, we have a biblical mandate, a biblical command to pray for those in leadership, even if we disagree with them. I think Paul would agree with that. We might not always want to submit, but we need to submit. And that's a part of our character growth as well, because none of us are completely autonomous and none of us individually can discern everything that's good for the whole body. So that submission is a method of humility that really plays into being a unified body of Christ. Unity can be obtained after going through a season of disagreement. Paul illustrated that for us. He's showing that that can happen. We could see that there was that huge dispute uh, Paul and Barnabas disputed over John Mark because apparently John Mark flaked out on him, but they later came to an agreement that John Mark had risen to the occasion. He had grown through the experience. He had become more mature and Paul later commends John Mark. So we can understand that unity really can be obtained. I've seen that in several decades of ministry in various churches. One of the sweetest expressions of unity that I've ever seen and that, uh, Joy, my wife, had seen was in the church that's now Crossroads Community Baptist Church. It was known as Packard Road Baptist Church in Ann Arbor years ago. And there was this sweet lady. She was a very tall, athletic lady. She was getting her doctorate in uh, some form of physical therapy related to athletics at the University of Michigan. And she was a gentle giant, a sweet person, and just so uh, effusive with her personality. Uh, she, she was just gracious and always made you feel welcomed and warm. When she would say, I need a hug, she would wrap you up in a hug and she goes, oh, that's not tight enough, honey. I need to feel your heartbeat. <laughs> that was Pat. And Joy loved Pat and she hung around with Pat. She also hung around with somebody, a member of that church, who was a little person. And Pat was over six feet tall. And of course, the little person was maybe four and a half feet tall. And the three of them were kind of unusual to be seen out in public, but they went places in public. And I love that. It's such a great expression to see this wonderful unity happening among people that were very different from very different backgrounds. And because there were several older ladies in our seniors back then that would meet monthly for these potluck dinners, Pat Smith wanted to show how much she loved these ladies. Now, it's not been that many years ago when Pat, whose parents were sharecroppers in the South, were probably mistreated by some of those very kind of families that these ladies had come from. There was the whole South and North thing. But Pat wanted them to know that that didn't make any difference because we're in the body of Christ and everybody's equal. And so Pat would invite them over to her house and she would cook some good Southern cooking for them. 
And she would show up at these senior potlucks and she would just run around and hug everybody and love on them. And Pat was a great example of what happens when we're encouraging unity because she broke down the walls, man. She broke down the barriers with these people and nobody who had previously been from the South had anything bad to say about Pat Smith. In fact, we cheered her on and I'm sure that Pat is probably grinning ear to ear when she knew how many people that were from the South were applauding her when she graduated with her doctorate from U of M. It was a wonderful situation and I love that kind of unity which can be expressed to one another if we'll lay down some of the pet peeves that we have and focus on being Christ-like and encouraging one another to be unified in the truths that grow out of the gospel, which is what Paul has been talking about all through his letter, death, burial, and resurrection. That's what unites all of us. And then here's a difficult section of this letter. Paul speaks some tough truths, and you need to know that he was speaking using some language that was very common to the people he was writing to back then. It sounds weird to us, perhaps, but he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed means anathema is the word there. And then he says, Maranatha, come Lord. Why would he say that? Well, the very word that he uses there is the same word that Christ used when he was saying to Peter after Peter had denied him three times and he's getting ready to restore Peter into this relationship. And he says, do you love me, Peter? I mean, do you literally relate to me in a way that puts me before yourself? Are you willing to do the things that I'm asking you to do because you know that you can trust me. It was an intimate kind of love expressed here. And Paul is saying, if anyone doesn't have this intimate kind of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, let that person be set aside for destruction. Now that sounds harsh, doesn't it? But that's what anathema meant, set aside for destruction. And when he says that in conjunction with the Maranatha, he says something that they would have understood that people would have said at all times, when is there going to be justice? They would say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come again and judge the living and the dead. When you come, all the truths will be exposed, and those who need to be judged will be judged. Those who are set aside to, for destruction, you will deal with them. It's not to us. It's not for us to deal with them. Vengeance is not ours. Vengeance belongs to you. All that is wrapped up in this concept. So for Paul to say, let them be accursed, Lord Jesus come, he's saying for those who deserve it, it's because they heard the truths, they saw the example, they saw eyewitness reports, they had enough evidence to make this firm decision for themselves, and yet they chose to reject it. When they should have and could have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ and loved him as Peter embraced him and loved him, so that they could start serving others and learning to be more like Jesus every day through the help of his Holy Spirit. For those who heard it, know it, saw it, and rejected it, it's going to be up to the Lord to send them where they have sent themselves. Because when people set themselves up, if you look at John chapter 3, you can see all those who are condemned already because they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not because God didn't try to reveal himself. It's not because Paul didn't want these people to be saved. Of course he did. That's the whole gist of the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul went above and beyond himself to try desperately to show people everybody should receive this wonderful good news. But for those who don't, they have set themselves aside for destruction because they have chosen to reject Jesus Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, come. You make the judgment. The final judgment is up to you.
And then he's always expressing Christ-like love. And he wants the people to do this in all the churches, especially in the church in Corinth, because they hadn't necessarily been doing that very well. So he says, the churches in the province of Asia, Aquila, Priscilla, all these other people that he had been working with are sending their love to you too. They felt like they were a part of the work. They were united. They were joined together. Like when we get some of these missionary letters from the Garcias or the Collins or Mark Sturkin or uh, any of the number of people that we're helping to support, some of which I can't mention because they're in areas of the world that we would prefer them not to be known. All these people are a part of our work and you're supporting them and we send encouragement and love and he wants them to know that they're connected with these folks as well all the brothers and sisters here meaning in ephesus where he's writing the letter may the grace of the lord jesus be with you may love to all of you in christ jesus or my love to all of you in christ jesus paul never held back from telling them how much he loved them and by the way have i told you lately how much i love you the body of christ I do. And Paul reminds me that I need to keep reminding you that he and I have a great love for the body of Christ, the expression of all those who are in Christ. So here's the thing in this wrap up from Paul. We see some really practical, gospel centric, loving, compassionate, sometimes difficult truths, but always balanced with compassion. Are we living our lives that way? Do people see that? in the expressions of how we relate to others? Do they hear that in our speech, in our tone? Are, are they seeing those kinds of qualities, those principles being lived out? Because they are watching. And I would say that this is a challenge for me because I know how stressed I've been through a pandemic and how easy it has been for me not to live in such a way that people would say, wow, how is he doing that? He seems much more calm than I would expect somebody going through all this right now. Or he seems, even though he's agitated, he's clearly expressing that he has somewhere to go with that agitation. He's anxious, yes, but he has somebody to talk it out with. He has a God who cares. He sees that there's an end to all this one day. There's something about him that's different about others that I've seen walking through this pandemic. Are they seeing that in your lives? because people can see that in us, because the Holy Spirit indwells in every single one of us who have trusted Jesus Christ. And we can make a difference in other people's lives all around us. God wants us to make a difference. We are in our mission field right now. Some of us are stuck in our houses and our mission field is through Zoom meetings. That's gonna end one day, but for now, this is our mission field. And so Paul would say, well, here's a door of opportunity. Is there opposition? Absolutely. But there's also a door of opportunity. So let's use all these other wonderful skills and principles that God has given us, and let's reveal Christ to the people we interact with every single day. And if you're somebody who needs to make that decision and you say, I'm starting to understand now why Paul would get so passionate about putting this out there by putting himself in harm's way, in fact, enduring suffering for the sake of the gospel because the gospel makes sense to me this is truth god set this in motion a long time ago but everything in the old testament points to jesus christ and paul is picking up on what christ set in motion and paul is helping to fan the flame through the with the help of the holy spirit that flame of the holy spirit to grow this new church which is continuing today and we're seeing this same church still in uh 
genuine activity for the Lord. God did all that. He's continuing to do that. It hasn't stopped yet. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church because Christ in every one of us is the church. So let's pray for God to start showing himself through us very clearly in how we're responding to these spiritual principles that Paul has given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that Paul has so eloquently put forth all these principles and he's showing us by writing to a church that even though there's some dysfunctionality, has an opportunity to give all these teachable moments for us, all these lessons. And so I'm grateful that we get to learn these lessons, even though they may be secondhand, because they're still extremely valuable to us. And I pray that all of us would seek to be unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would continue to make the gospel center of our church and around everything that drives us forward. Because the gospel is the only thing that's gonna change people with the thing they need changed with the most, and it's gonna last forever. And I pray that they will be changed. I pray that more and more people will be changed by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ who indwells in every believer so that they too can look forward to that preferable future in heaven forever. And that one day, Maranatha, you will return again and you'll judge the living and the dead. Those who have rejected you will be sent to their eternal reward. Those who have accepted you will be ushered into their reward and that ultimately you will reign forever and ever as the King of Kings. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 